Welcome, everyone, to another edition of After Further Review. Mark Ferreira, John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor, our producer. It is Friday, July 3rd. Hamilton has dropped. People have already seen it. It's the day after John Pelkey's birthday, the day after the true Independence Day, the day before the mattress sale day, which is John Pelkey's wife's Jody's birthday. This is a major time of year. And on top of it all, we're going to do another deep dive today following the um, the the lauded, the lauded original <laughs> debut of our deep dive uh, with the Oakland A's that John Pelkey did a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to try my best to reach that bar or at least set a standard, uh, meet the standard that John Pelkey has, uh, has, has set for all of us here. Before we get going, first of all, Jeff, uh, how are you? I'm back in New York, by the way. You see the Live from New York uh, book behind me, back in New York City. Uh, there's another reason why I have that up there, and that we'll get to that in just a bit. But but how are you, sir? I'm doing back, great. You're in Orlando. Everything's fine, right? Yeah, everything's back to status quo, as status quo as status quo can be in the age of coronavirus. In the age of COVID, any calls from the uh, fr- from Disney regarding anything uh, future work-wise at this point in time? No, I'm sure you'll get a call before me because you have to make it. Ha- ma- you have to make the story before we can film the story. Well, we'll see. We'll see about that. I don't know. I'm. I'm. Uh, yeah. I don't know about that. John Pelkey, how are you? You had a great day yesterday. You just. Uh, I, I think you kayaked uh, what up the St. Johns River. Did not go as far as uh, up as the St. John's River. To Jacksonville? Uh, no, did not. Up there? Did not, but did uh, put in probably a couple of miles in, in the uh, kayak when all was said and done. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Got my one and only gift on my birthday from my friends uh, Chris and Zan, and it was a bottle of uh, small batch of bourbon. So then I spent the rest of the evening tasting that. Uh, the wife and I ordered some food from a favorite uh, establishment and we watched john stewart directed uh irresistible i believe this was called i've seen that i, yeah. I enjoyed it fun fun little romp uh yep. kind of timely about uh really about campaign finance essentially and yes it, but uh, fun little comedy fun little comedy so that that was it my my wife is here do you want to make your debut video wise jody jody chase makes her video debut there's some prettying up to be done here but since it's her birthday tomorrow Oh, I look. Which here's, way do I go? Oh, hello. The, oh, look hello. at Jody. Hi, look at, hello, Jody. How Bye. are you? <laughs> hello, All right, Jody. There, it is. And there she goes. She leaves. Every, everybody says happy birthday, oh, hun, tomorrow. A day, uh, a day early. I think, Mark. I think it's really timely. I, I don't think. It, I think it just fell this way. That on the weekend of the fourth of July, you're doing a deep dive about a team that won. The World Series in the bicentennial year of 1976. There it is, 1976. So it all comes together, and I think, uh, I think we, uh, I think we planned it that way. Not at all. It just happened to fall that way. But yes, in 1976, and boy, oh boy, were the Reds a amazing team in 1976. But uh, we're going to talk about that. That's almost a postscript, John and Jeff, about this story. The story really uh, does involve the, the the stretch, is what I call it, from 1970 to 1976 for the Big Red Machine. But I'll tell you, uh, the climax of the story happens in the 1975 World Series, which I think by any measure is arguably still top three World Series of all time, if not number one of all time. And this is a, you know, a good what is it, 45 years after it's happened, which is <laughs> remarkable. Uh, you can make an argument for a few others, like the 91, like the 86, and among others, but uh, it will uh, crescendo then this story. But we're going to talk about 
uh, a team known as the Big Red Machine. We're going to talk about how it was built, uh, the character of this team, uh, the struggles of this team, the ultimate success of this team. They became the best team in baseball. They were certainly the best team of the 70s, and they were, by definition, the most dominant NL team, National League team in a century. So that's a, a remarkable story, and it's it's an awful lot of fun. All right, so basic basic stuff about the stretch, 70 to 76. It's just basic stuff before we get going. They had six division titles. Uh, they had four pennants, two World Series, uh, more World Series appearances than any other team during the decade. Now, this uh, six division titles was the, was the entire decade, but uh, they had five division titles during the 70 to 76 stretch. Uh, they're on the only National League team, as mentioned before, uh, in the last almost 100 years, since 1921, to win back-to-back world championships. Outside of the 1971 season in that stretch, they averaged 101 victories a season. There are four Hall of Famers from that team, including Sparky Anderson. There probably should be five. We haven't even included Pete Rose in that thing. In that seven-year stretch between 670 and 76, the Reds had five MVPs. That's wow. just amazing. How I always that? forget that. Five MVPs, two from Johnny Bench, two from Joe Morgan, wow. and one from Pete Rose. Uh, and we've talked about this. What's that, Johnny? Nothing. I think you were getting a, a return. Oh, okay. Uh, we've talked about this, how you build a team. You know, you you, you got to be strong up the middle. Well, the Cincinnati Reds were strong up the middle. They had gold glovers everywhere you look. They had a gold glover, you know, maybe one of the best catchers of all time, behind the plate and Johnny Bench. Dave Concepcion was a perennial gold glover. Joe Joe Morgan was a, a gold glover during this stretch. And then Cesar Geronimo in center field. So all four of them were gold glovers during this stretch as well. And uh, the players that Everyone brings up during this particular period of time, for the most part, some people were traded, some people left a little earlier, but they called him the great aid. And it was the, the three Hall of Famers, Bench and Morgan and Tony Perez, as well as Pete Rose. Obviously, those are the four biggies. And then there's Dave Concepcion and Cesar Geronimo, as mentioned before, and also George Foster. We've got a great story about him and uh, Ken Griffey, Ken Griffey Sr., who uh, was a clutch, clutch player for that team. So Cincinnati. Cincinnati is really, in a lot of ways, the uh, the home of Major League Baseball. I mean, for years, the first game would always start there. Uh, the first professional team, we brought this up last episode, John, was in 1869. First right. time they paid everyone to play uh, baseball. They called themselves the Cincinnati Baseball Club. It was as if it's a, you know, if it's, if it's a soccer team, uh, football club. And they were also a charter member of the, the National League in 1876. Uh, they called themselves the Red Stockings back in the day. A lot of firsts for this team. You know, they were um, their first World Series win, John. You know who was against? The Chicago. Uh, the, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not letting you answer. I no, let you answer it's okay. Things. I was going to, you were about to say Chicago, and I was going to say the Brooklyn Americans, just throwing out some early 20th century team that no longer exists. Uh, but I'm assuming the Chicago Cubs? It's the Black Sox. Oh, wow. Okay. 1919. So they're they're like constantly in the forefront of the history of baseball, including that major scandal. It's really interesting. Crosley Field, their uh, their stadium for most of the uh, 20th century or a good portion of the 20th century. First one to host a night game. 
John yeah, Paul was, Gamble. Wasn't that in was it that late thirties, early forties? It was it was really real, it was earlier than I would have thought it would have been. Yeah, thirty-five. Thirty-five, oh, yeah. yeah. That, really surprising. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And uh and we know about John Johnny Vandermeer. He's the only pitcher in major league history then, first one to do it, and no one's done it since to throw back to back no hitters. Uh, also, during the Red Scare, now I I can remember shadows of this growing up, but mm-hmm. they were called the Red Legs. Yep, the Red Legs. Fifty six to sixty, they were called the Red Legs because he didn't want to call them the Reds. Right, you know. I remember seeing pennants with Red Legs on it when I was a kid, and maybe in a book or something, and not you know not reading what went with the picture. Uh, Wondering why this team was called the Red and thinking they were still referred to as the Red Legs. That's what I thought. I thought that the Reds were just a uh, a nick or a short shortening of Red Legs. That's what I thought for a long time growing up. Oh, the Cincinnati Red Legs. That's what uh, the the old fashioned term. But they're just it's, everyone's shortened the name to Reds, and that's not the case at all. They actually changed the name. Okay, hold on. They years. changed the name because Reds was thought to be offensive, and now the Washington Redskins are going to try to change their name that it is offensive. So why not Red Legs? Why not just look back to an earlier, simpler era for some of the people who may be opposed to that? There's precedent. Exactly. There's precedent. You know, something that really didn't exist and didn't need to be worried about. They changed the name for something that does exist. People have pushed back on for decades now. And, you know, despite the fact being at the forefront, John and Jeff, of of everything in Major League Baseball, they had only had three World Series appearances before this stretch, before 1970, only three World Series appearances in their history. And uh, and just the uh, the two victories. The two yeah. against the Black Sox and then one in, I think, 1941. So uh, really not a lot of success until this stretch. So now uh, the way this was the, the way they were built, they start with Bob Housem. He's the GM. And this guy has a remarkable career. He's he's a first of all, a career minor leaguer. Uh, uh, owner in in Denver. Wow. And and he uh, was like a twice voted minor league executive of the year. Uh, and then at one point in time, he used this sort of know-how to building teams to form the Continental League. And that was going to be a third league. And the reason they wanted to do this was it was sort of a response to all the Westward Ho expansion of Major League Baseball. And his partner in that, uh, actually the president of that, was Branch Rickey. So somehow Branch Rickey is tied up to the guy who really started building this team, Bob Housem. And then uh, and then when that folded, he stayed in Denver, founded the Broncos, this guy. Okay, he's a charter member of the American Football League. So this guy, you know, he wow. was – Wow. How about that? How about Overachiever. That? Big time overachiever. <laughs> uh, Denver did not do well, and uh, he abandoned them after a while because they, they, they did not do well right off the top. So he, then he goes to St. Louis – to be their GM at the urging of Branch Rickey again. Branch Rickey was an advisor to Gussie Bush at the time and says, bring in this dude. It's 1964, so he gets there at the end of that season when the Phillies collapse and the and the Cardinals then win. But that wasn't really his doing. But then he built the team in 65, 66, and he was gone by 67. He was at the Reds, but that St. Louis team that won in 67 and 68 were built essentially by Bob Housem. So Interesting. He, he, he joins the Reds in 67. And um, and this is 67. Now think about this. 1967. 
He wants his team. We talked about your A's back in the day who, you know, embodied the counterculture uh, to the nth degree in a lot of ways. And of course, Bob Housen was not that guy at all. World War II vet and wanted his team to, um, you know, have the identity be separate from what was going on in the country. Um, he didn't want him to be associated with the hippies or the, you know, the long hairs, of course, <laughs> yes. what they called them. And um, <laughs> he wanted a team that was good and decent and that the decent people of Cincinnati would be able to root for. So he made sure that they wore their hair short, that they had white uniforms. And if they, if they refused to get a haircut, he, he literally cut them. He literally fired them which was uh, remarkable. No facial hair at all. You know, he made sure that the le- the pant legs um, uh, would just end right above the knee so they'd see the socks, which I love that look, but he, that was uh, codified with the Cincinnati Reds. And then, you know, this guy, Howsam, hired Sparky Anderson in 1970, you know, um, and he also made two amazing trades in 1971. He got Joe Morgan for Lee May, who was a big star in Cincinnati, and we'll talk about that. It wasn't necessarily uh, – not many people liked that trade at the time. Right. We'll talk about that. And then George Foster, and this is where I can insert my San Francisco Giants um, <laughs> need and percentage of every show in here. So but if you George had Foster- 14 minutes into the show, ladies and gentlemen, if you had 14 minutes into the show before Mark shoehorned more San Francisco Giants slash 49er information, you are a winner. So at any rate, George Foster was a giant, and they traded him to the Reds for Frank Duffy. (laughs) Yeah. At the time, it was like Frank Duffy. And then, of course, George Foster goes on to be a part of the Big Red Machine and and hit 52 home runs in 1977. Oh, by the way, a good story about him coming up as well. Okay, mentioned before. By the way, Frank Duffy went on to win three Employee of the Month awards as a regional sales manager for Alcoa. So, hey, Frank, life well lived, brother. Shout out to you. A successful a successful man after all. So, Halsam hires Sparky Anderson in 1970, and this was really interesting because he replaces Dave Bristol. And Dave Bristol was kind of this hard luck kind of manager guy who um, had his best success with the Reds. He was the youngest manager when they when they brought him up. He was over 500 every year, and I think he finished 13 or 16 games over 500 in 1969. His teams were number one in runs scored in 68, 69. But 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 he fired the guy. Dave Bristol, by the way, goes on to to Seattle, okay, to to manage the Seattle Pilots, wow. and he doesn't even get to do a, one game with them before they're before they're relocated to Milwaukee because they go bankrupt. <laughs> he then he then manages a hapless Milwaukee Brewers team right. and then goes to Atlanta where he manages another hapless team and he's the manager that Ted Turner pulls in 1977 John when Ted Turner managed the one game wow. that he's so famous for it's poor poor Dave Bristol still alive 87 so wow. you know 80, All right, 80, Dave not bad All right so Sparky Comes in. Sparky's a career minor leaguer, 10 years in the minor leagues, got got to the majors for one year, played with the Phillies, hit like, you know, 202. And uh, then he goes back to the minors. And then he's uh, playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs at this point in time. 
And uh, this is toward the end of his minor league career. And there's a guy. Minor league baseball's Toronto Maple Leafs. Just want to make sure that no one makes that mistake. (laughs) Hey, you know, Sparky was an intimidator for the Maple Leafs for a couple of years when he was trying to get the baseball thing together. So it's a Maple Leafs minor league team, to your point. The owner (laughs) of that team saw noticed that he was good. He was a good leader. He could relate to a lot of different players. There are different backgrounds. He just seemed to be a, a, a real um, manager in the making, if you will. Mm-hmm. Just noticed these qualities and said to him, you know, this is probably something you should do. And he, and he offered him the manager job for the next year. And do you know who that owner was, John Pelkey, of the Toronto Maple Leafs minor league ball team that offered Sparky Mander, uh, Anderson his first managerial job? Uh, golly. Uh, it, uh, it, it relates to you. And and to what we've been talking about in terms of, in terms of what's in the news right now with a team you like, ah, is it uh, a Snyder? Is there a Snyder involved? Or it's no? Jack Kent Cook. Oh wow! Okay, all right. Jack Kent Cook offers Sparky Anderson his first managerial job. It's unbelievable. Wow, that's just crazy. And he Isn't went on. To, yeah, and I think Kent Cook owned the L.A. Kings for a while as well. So he stayed. He stayed in hockey for a bit. Yeah, and he and he and he uh, he also owned, I think, uh, the Lakers for for a long yeah. long time. So he uh, he does the Toronto thing. He goes into the St. Louis organization as a as a manager as well. Um, leaves minor league, goes to the uh, San Diego Padres as a third base coach in 1969, which was their first year in existence. And somehow Bob Housem hires him, and everyone in Cincinnati is like Sparky. Who? He was 35, the shock of gray hair. He did everything he could to. <laughs> diet but it never worked <laughs> and and they ask him uh you know you know, sparky's some of his famous quotes th- throughout that those early years is you know he says you know how you judge yourself you judge yourself by what's on the back of your baseball card and and he would he would be this kind of manager he would sit his team down in spring training and he would um excuse me i'm trying to get this going here uh he would say to his team all right now here's tony perez Here's Pete Rose. Here's Joe Morgan. Here's Johnny Bench. Okay, rest of the team. These guys make their own rules. Okay? <laughs> they have no curfew. They have all kinds of special privileges. Bench can golf whenever he wants. They're royalty. And he actually said, you guys are turds. He said, <laughs> if you want to be treated like one of them, you have to play like one of them. You have to work like one of them. He says, I don't treat everyone the same. This is a quote. Um, I'll give you as much as you give me. So it's uh, it's pretty neat about Sparky Anderson. He loved those four. He loved those four players so much, as you can imagine. Yeah, you, you want know, to write he, that in on the uh, the lineup every day. You're going to love those guys because you're going to keep your job for a long time with that guy. Absolutely, job. and yeah. he's and he's just trying to inspire the rest of them to play as well as those guys. He when he when he would be asked about describing his team. He would start crying when talking about Johnny Bench or Joe Morgan, which probably was his favorite, actually. And um, and I'll tell you, they they listened to him. You know, as as the decade progressed, and everyone was wearing long hair, and everyone was letting it letting it all hang out, if you will. Uh, those players stayed true to that Bob Howsam thing because of Sparky, because Sparky was a conservative guy as well. Right. So they stayed true to all that. They played hard for him. They kept their hair short for him. Uh, and it um, circles back to the the A's thing. And I think I mentioned that Sparky Anderson said, I would never let my team look like that. 
yeah. prior to going out and losing in seven games to the A's. I know, and that was a that was a brutal loss for him because he another thing about him, he would, you know, wax poetic. He's kind of a Casey Stengel guy in yeah. a way. He butchered the English language. He would wax poetic, but he'd be highly entertaining. And he'd always make these bold predictions every year. You know, in nineteen seventy he says, We've got the best damn team out there. And then after that they lose to the Orioles, he says, Well, you know what happened? I mean, come on now. Guy busted us up single-handedly. Talking about Brooks Robinson at the time. I've still got the best team in baseball. We're going to win it all in 71. Well, they didn't even win. They didn't even go 571. In 72, he does the same thing. And he thinks that um, he thought they were the best team. And then he thought for sure, John, that no way a team as disciplined as he was, as controlled, as pristine as the big red machine was, could possibly lose to the, uh, you know, to those undisciplined, hippie, drippy A's. And, of course, that's what they did in seven games. That was rough. For and him. you know what is main, the main issue with Sparky, oh, I think, over uh, uh, overpraising his team was he lost to two teams that clearly had superior pitching. I, I don't think there's any doubt that that, uh, that 70s A's, uh, excuse me, Orioles team and the 72 A's team both had better pitching than those Reds teams because they were known really more as an offensive machine. Well, it's interesting because, and we'll get to this, they finished in the top five in ERA every single one of those years, and oftentimes two and three. It's overlooked because the offense was so powerful right. and would, would lead the league in runs scored and in stolen bases oftentimes. But, I think, but don't you think anybody would have probably taken the Orioles starters and oh, the yeah. A's starters above them? So, And those are yeah. close. Uh, well, Brooks, I, the, the 70 series was only a six-game series, I, I believe. I don't it think was. that one was. It was a yeah. five game. It was a five game series, actually. Okay, okay. So the five game series, but uh, I, 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 I really do think that that was Sparky was making that mistake and not thinking of the the cliche thing about pitching and defense wins, yeah, championships and 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 they did have better pitching. There's no doubt. The A's and the Orioles, even though the Reds were very very strong right. as a staff, uh, they certainly couldn't compete. Well. They almost did in 72, certainly against the A's. That was a great series, but they couldn't compete against the defense and the pitching of the Orioles. So now the big red machine, there's a lot of myth. We've talked about this. Baseball loves their myths. Hmm. Baseball, you know, the, the myth, my favorite myth about baseball is that the guy who fired the first shot in defense of Fort Sumter in the Civil War, the right. soldiers going, whoa, they're shooting at us. What are they doing? Bam. Oh, by you know, went went out maybe the next day and invented baseball well, after Doubleday. I, I don't think that's possible simply because Doubleday was a general at that time, and the man in charge at Fort Sumter was actually uh, a major, Major Robert Anderson. So I'm not I'm not thinking Doubleday was like, look, I mean, I know I'm a general and everything, but you you call this thing. I just want to pull the lanyard. That's it. You're in charge of everything else. I just want to fire the first shot, and then I got to figure out how far it is between bases. So go ahead, do what you need to do. Right. So that's, see, outstanding work out of you busting up that myth because yeah. it's not true. No not one true. thinks it's true. Not true. And so there's a lot of myths surrounding how the Big Red Machine was named. Of course, Pete Rose thinks he did it, which uh, <laughs> which he th which he thought he did everything. And Pete Rose was so key to this whole run. And, and, and I think everyone knows that who has even has a cursory knowledge of Major League Baseball. But he really thought he invented it. He had like a little deuce coupe type thing when he was a, when he was a teenager or whatever and they called it the, he called it the little red machine and he figured oh, okay now it's just the big red machine and you know no one no one bought it because no one ever bought 
lot of evidently, even back then, no one ever believed Pete right. Rose. They was Pete's anything. talking again. Yeah. What's he lying about? So then Howsam, the Bob Howsam guy, thought he uh, may have invented it because, you know, they used a Zamboni back in the day, John, to, to clean the AstroTurf. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, you know, if 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 just looking at it and seeing how people reacted when they fell on it and the kind of bruises and scrapes wouldn't convince you that that stuff is horrible. Right. How about a Zamboni cleaning it, convincing you that it's, you know, hard as ice, essentially? No. Idea. Anyway, they would do that between innings. And he believed that 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 Zamboni machine that because it was a big red machine inspired the name. He went to his death believing that and people just let him, you know, kind of thing. Um, th- there was a sports writer. This is the probably the most popular one. Coin they they scored 19 runs against the Dodgers or whatever it was uh, in a game in August in '69, and he, he coined the phrase. But his story doesn't check out when when he when he talks about other details about that story doesn't check out. So they really think it was Dave Bristol, the the ill fated Dave Bristol, not only goes on to manage the Pilots, the Brewers, and the Braves, <laughs> at just the the depths of those teams, you know, franchise right. histories. Right. Uh, but he, he's the one that co- coined it because as I mentioned, they led the league and run scored in 68. They led the league and run scored in 69. They sort of could do whatever they wanted. They were in the pennant race for a long time in 69. That was a three-way race between the Atlanta Braves, the Reds, and you guessed it, the San Francisco Giants. <laughs> that was the first year. So, so that's where, that's the origin of the big red machine. So now let's talk about the players that are involved in this stretch. And let's start with Pete Rose. Pete Rose was Rookie of the Year in 1963. And you got to remember, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, and Tony Perez were already there before Sparky Anderson got there. And uh, and Pete Rose got there in 63, was a Rookie of the Year, ended up being a 1973 MVP as well. He was a 1975 World Series MVP, and we'll get to that. For 15 years, a 15-year stretch, he averaged 204 hits. He averaged 204 hits, and he uh, led the league in run score in 74, 75, and 76. He averaged 316 in those years as well. But I'll tell you, John, and this we talked about, we touched on this with the A's. In the mid-70s, well, I should say early to mid-70s, when people would go to the general manager's office or they would go to whatever the general manager person in charge of negotiating salaries would be for a raise, uh, it was rough. It was yeah. brutal. And even in se- between 74 and 75, when Marvin Miller was now on the scene and it was things were starting to bend the players way a little bit. But free agent, they were doing everything they c- could to stave off free agency. I mean, he went into Dick Wagner's office, who was sort of uh, Housem's uh, hatchet man. Actually, a writer called him Housem's Haldeman. <laughs> and. Uh, Nice. He would go into the office and he said, listen, I want to raise. I mean, I, I led the league in runs scored last year. I led the league in doubles last year. I had 106 walks. And Wagner says, listen, Pete, we don't we're going to we're going to give you a cut in salary because we don't we don't we pay you to hit 300. You didn't hit 300 last year. And and he, uh, you know, he goes in there and he says, we're going to cut your salary by 30,000. And then he's making 100,000. So it's 30 percent cut because he didn't hit. 300, even though he led the league in runs scored and doubles and 106 walks. It's unbelievable what happened. So there it is. So now Johnny Bench, of course, is another icon of this team. John, Johnny Bench and Pete Rose, I would say, John, I think you probably agree with this. When when you think of the big red machine, they're the they're the icons of it, yeah. if you yeah. will. They're they're the biggest names. And 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 Johnny Bench was 
unbelievable. Another rookie of the year, 1968. He is a two-time MVP, 72 and 74. And uh, in 72, he had 40 home runs and 148 RBIs. No catcher had ever done that before. So he, he was doing things no catcher had ever done. He was reinventing the position. He was really revolutionizing the position of a catcher. The, the, the one-handed grabs that he would do that seemed to be standard today, that was all brand new back in the day. The way he would uh, get bunts and and uh, how quick he would get to those things, throw these guys out. And his arm was unbelievable. Yeah. He had 11 straight gold gloves, but his arm was so relentless and so good that by 72, by 1972, the National League said, ah, we don't we don't need to try and run on on Johnny Bench. And and this is in an era of a lot of stolen bases. Right. So that's how much how dominant he was as a catcher. He uh, he had uh, first five years of the stretch. He led the league in home runs twice from 70 to 76. He uh, led the league in RBIs three times, and he was a star. He was a total star. He was the best catcher in baseball. Time Magazine called him the best catcher in baseball. He'd do TV TV right. shows, guest star on TV shows, open his restaurants. I mean, that's... Oh, he was huge. He was everywhere. He was ubiquitous in the in the 70s. He's on all the Bob Hope specials he, and all of that. Bob sort of Hope stuff. were big buddies. He and yeah, Bob Hope... Of course they were. We're, we're big buddies. Yes, it's a pretty conservative team. Yeah, the, uh, the Cincinnati Reds, and but and he the, was just just a, I don't find a point on it, Mark. But the the fact that he was as good an offensive player as he was, and he was an exceptional yeah. offensive player for any position on the field, could have easily moved him to first base. You know, and a lot of teams might have done that. But it would have been a mistake because he was so good behind the plate as well. It was just that. And that's why, to your point, most people, he is in the conversation for the greatest catcher of all time. And usually, no doubt, usually wins the discussion. I would say I would vote for him as the best catcher of all time as well. That's a very good point. Just uh, everything. Check off every single box, including boxes you didn't think catchers could check off at the time. Right. He did. Uh, he and he and Rose were the icons of the team. Uh, a sports writer said that, you know, Rose sort of owns Cincinnati because he was from Cincinnati. He's kind of a city kid. Uh, but Bench owns the country, which is the truth. You know, Bench was the star. Rose was just the the, the local hero, uh, city kid. And, of course, uh, Johnny Bench is big country Oklahoma kid yeah. as well. And, uh, it, you know, the differences between them are interesting because Rose is sort of this this street with this hustler kind of guy didn't really have a defensive position sort of roamed all over the place. Yeah. And of course, Johnny bench, one of the best catchers, you know, of all time uh, as well. And, and, and they're hitting their hitting styles. Rose was not a power guy on any right. level. He was a slasher. He was a Rod Carew. He's a Ichiro type uh, hitter. And bench was, you know, one of the best power hitters in the game. So, uh, and they, they really battled with one another. They really kind of, they went into business together and that fell apart. They would give each other a, a real hard time. They were true rivals. Uh, never, never got to any blows. But it's like a family in a way because when things got tough, they defend each other. And the perfect example of this is in 1973, and this is part of the struggles we'll get to a little bit later. This is, you know, this is a Cincinnati team that won 98 games, I believe. And they were a great team, and they're going to the uh, National League Championship Series to see who you know, is going to go to the World Series. And they're playing a team that was three games over 500, the New York Mets in 73. We've talked about that when we talked about the A's. And uh, the Mets were not as good as the Reds. There's no doubt about it. Right. But they had pitching, 
and Kuzman pitched a shutout in game two, so now it's tied in game three. Tempers started flare, and 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 Rose slid hard into Bud Harrelson in that game, and <laughs> Harrelson said something, and Rose said something, and I think Rose then pushed him, and it was a massive, massive brawl, which is very famous. Look it up on YouTube. Oh, it's it's and it's it. It's I mean, and I hate I I would never promote violence, but it's fun to watch. Yeah, as a baseball fan to see and realize, yeah, on what level it's on, because you did. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think I may not have said this during the, the A's thing, but that 73 Mets team is uh, often considered the worst team to ever play in a World yeah. Series. They, they had gone 19 and seven in the last, you know, bit, bit of September. Right. And they, you know, beat the Reds three to two in that series and, and took the A's to seven games. So they were on a hot streak. But, yes, right. as a team, you're right. That had to be frustrating for Cincinnati. Oh, absolutely. And so that frustrating. frustration came out in that fight. And so by the time game five happens, and it's in New York, and the Mets have a comfortable 7-2 to lead in the top of the ninth, the, the Reds do load the bases, but Pete's on first. And that crowd in Shea Stadium was drunk, rowdy, <laughs> and they hated Pete Rose. And literally, Johnny Bench, as much as the two of them were rivals, you know, the story is he's got onto the, you know, the, the top step of the dugout with a bat and he's just looking into the stands. He's just saying he's just daring people to come down because that's back in the day where people just rushed in onto the onto the <laughs> wow. field. And, and he uh, seems like such an affable guy, too. It had to be so scary from a guy who really, you know, he had Johnny Bench's baseball bunch with kids on TV. I think yeah. that was later. But still, he seems like such an affable guy, but such a big man and so intimidating. And protective of of uh, Pete Rose, even though they were big rivals. So now Joe Morgan, we talked about this, the trade. He was at, at Houston at first, and he stole a lot of bases, and he scored some runs, and, and he was a disruptor. He's the guy that, you know, kind of, you know, has a 13-pitch at bat and, and you know, walks or gets hit and then, you know, steals second and moves to third on a slow grounder and, you know, scores on a sacrifice fly. But he never really hit that much. He, he was uh, – you know, I think he hadn't hit above 268 the previous four years before the trade. And then he goes to Cincy, and nobody in Cincinnati liked the trade. Not even Sparky Anderson liked the trade. Uh, Lee May was a big, bruising guy. He had a great year in 70 uh, and to, uh, to help them get to the World Series. And people loved Lee May in Cincinnati, and he was traded for Lee May. They didn't understand it. He was, yeah, Morgan wasn't a headliner. He had hit 256 the year before. And um, but Sparky, even though he didn't like it, he knew he had to deal with it. He, he goes to Joe Morgan. He said, listen, whatever happened in Houston doesn't matter because, you know, there were a lot of uh, stories about him being a, having a bad attitude, you know, by the and I will say this, the racist owner of the Houston Astros at the time who was involved back you know, 15 years prior in doing oh, yeah. everything he could to keep Jackie Robinson from okay. from uh, breaking the color barrier. So and Joe Morgan is also a racist guy. And Joe Morgan is also a guy who's well known for not backing down. Joe Morgan, there's no lack of confidence in a Joe Morgan. No, so not at all. You could see for those the guys who like to see people know their place, for lack of a better term, having yeah. an issue with that. Yeah, Morgan, that wasn't Morgan, Joe yeah. Morgan. Joe because Morgan did not, not at all. Place. He was what that guy would call uppity, quote unquote. <laughs> and uh, and so what Sparky did is he thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna this is a fresh start, and I'm gonna put you in uh, right next to Pete. Because uh, in the locker room, because I want whatever Pete has and people couldn't identify it. But it was a it was another it was another gear. You know, Pete Rose had another gear, whatever he has. Let's hope it rubs off on you. And 
And um, let's see what we're and that was a great move out of Sparky because it completely worked because literally overnight, Morgan and Rose became best friends. And overnight, Joe Morgan's career took off. It's he hit more homers than he ever did. He stole more bases than he ever did. He scored more runs than he ever had. As I mentioned, four years, he hadn't hit over 268 prior to that. After that, between 72 and 76, average 26 home runs, average 60 stolen bases a year, average 86 RBIs, average 305, two consecutive most valuable player awards. Just a brilliant move by the general manager and a brilliant move by the manager to help this guy uh, not only blend in, but be the spark that the Reds really did need to get them over that hump. And that was um, that was Joe made, Morgan. Made him a Hall of Fame player. Really made him a Hall of Fame player. And you wonder if, and I haven't seen interviews with Joe Morgan, but there'd be an interesting question to ask is, what was it for you? Did you feel like you were so challenged in Cincinnati because you're around a guy like uh, Pete Rose, whose famous quote was, I'd walk through hell in a gasoline suit to play baseball. So, you know, nuts. But uh, he yeah. uh, to, to drive Morgan, but also he came from a Houston team that was not particularly impressive to a team with all kinds of talent. And you have to assume that a competitive guy now looking around going, OK, I need to up my game here and certainly did. Good Lord. Yeah, it was it was a remarkable uh, turnaround, if you will. But you're right. He had all the tools in Houston, just didn't have the opportunities to show them uh, they, some great quotes w- uh, with Joe Morgan uh, regarding Joe Morgan and Pete Rose. They're, they're you know, best friends, as mentioned before. Morgan said, you know, we all love baseball there. Every one of us, Johnny Bench, Doggy, who was uh, Tony Perez. We all love the game. But I think any of us would tell you that Pete loved it just a little bit more. And it changed it changed him to be around him. I mean, Pete Rose was that kind of guy because he loved it so much. And they would give each other a hard time. Morgan, because Pete Rose was had no power. Morgan started having a lot of power when he was at Cincinnati and say, you know, why don't you just wear a dress to the plate, Pete? When, you know, and those kinds of things, you know, were not only not frowned upon, but they were actually encouraged. Yes. And uh, Pete would mock Joe because mock uh, Joe was pretty short. He was five, seven. And he said, don't. Stand too close to the bat rack, Morgan. <laughs> Someone will pick you up by mistake. Good Lord. I know. It's pretty hilarious. Oh, so now, my gosh. Tony Perez, another of these big four, uh, originally from Cuba. And, you know, he was playing baseball in Cuba before Castro uh, came down. And so what happened with him, it's amazing. He literally signed with the Reds for $2.50, which was the price of a visa to get into this country. And while he was in this country, after signing that contract, Cuba fell to Castro. And it was literally more than a decade before he saw his family again. So he got here and the country falls and he just, he stays. And it was for 250. But this guy, not only clutch, not only a strong silent type, we'll get into that, but 11 straight years, John, of 90 plus RBIs. Think of that. That is massive consistency. He was an RBI machine 11 straight years, and a lot of that predates yeah. this, this stretch that we're talking about, but it also included this stretch. Wow. And uh, he was a strong silent type, but, uh, but it's one of those guys where when he talked, you know, you'd listen. He'd break the tension. He'd know exactly when to tell a joke. He'd know exactly when to call a guy out. And uh, there's some great stories about Tony Perez coming up as well. That grade eight, once again, it's Bench, it's Morgan, it's Rose. It's Perez, and then it's Geronimo in center, Concepcion in, in uh, at shortstop, Griffey, who played uh, who played right field, 
And it was also Geronimo Center. Did I say that? Oh, I'm sorry. Foster played right and Griffey played left. So that was a pretty fun outfield. Griffey, Concepcion, and George Foster, none of which, you know, are Hall of Famers, but all of which were great, great ball players. And no, mentioned- and, and and Concepcion to me as a kid it was I think I was twelve when they won their first series in seventy six so I was right in the pocket I thought of Bench and Rose and then Concepcion right there with Morgan as the faces of that team even more than Perez to your point because Perez was was a quieter guy but Concepcion was was out front as a member of the Big Red Machine and he's up the middle too so you're seeing him make gems of defensive plays all the time in the field and he and Morgan are the you know the the double play combination and he also had some clutch timely hitting as well. Dave Concepcion was a major player in that. They had a, a top 5 pitching staff every year. You know, they had a Gary Nolan, we talked about this with Louis Tiant. Gary Nolan came into the league on fire, uh had a couple of great years, two or three great years and all of a sudden in, in 1973 you know, keeps feeling this pain. And he had played with pain for like two or three years. That's just what they did. Right. They just played with these sore shoulders, these sore arms, a stinging sort of sensation. And in 73, he, I don't know, pitched maybe 10 innings, and he didn't play at all in 74. But good fortune uh, shown on him because uh, Dr. Frank Job was in the news then and invented the Tommy John surgery. Tommy John had it. And uh, so did Gary Nolan. And he came back strong in 75 and 76. Uh, Jack Billingsley, Don Gullett. These are names some people remember. Oh, yeah. Fred Norman, uh, their, their bullpen. Uh, Pedro Borbone was a closer for a while. And Raleigh Eastwick. I'm sure you remember all these names, John Bell. Oh, I do. Absolutely. Yes. And of this great aid, this is a quick story about George Foster. Because George Foster uh, was a very, very uh, spiritual guy, very religious, um, very, read the Bible all the time, very quiet Christian guy. And, um, and they thought, well, maybe we bring in a chaplain and maybe we, um, and maybe, maybe some of this, you know, rubs off on the rest of the team is what they're thinking. So they bring in a chaplain and, uh, and, um, you know, Hausman's Haldeman, Dick Wagner, his hatchet man. Yeah. He was not happy about this. Not happy. And so this is what he brings. This, he brings this uh, preacher, this chaplain into the office. He says, what the fuck are you doing to my team? He says, listen, this is Wagner. This is Housem's Haldeman. He listen, I come from a business where I once walked into my boss's office and he was screwing his secretary on his desk. OK, you know what I did? I quietly backed away, walked out and it never came up again in conversation. That's my background. That's the kind of company we run here. And I don't need you messing up my players with your talk about God. Am I clear? It's all about George Foster. It's a good George Foster story. Wow. For such a conservative team, you know what I mean? That's that's the kind of conservatives that were running the country back then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very conservative on one end, and on the other hand, just cussing up a storm and not caring about all kinds of moral depravity and certainly not wanting any talk of God in the in the locker room. So pretty funny story there. So now this is a great team. We've talked about these players. They put together this amazing team, but there was a struggle in 70. They were they were 62 and 26 at the All-Star break. They lose to the Orioles. 71 is the big trade Morgan for uh, Morgan for for May and uh, and Foster for Duffy. Uh, they finish under 500 that year in 72. They have another great year. They lose to the A's in seven games in 73. Another great year. They lose to the Mets 
We've talked about that in the uh, in the league championship series. Seventy four, they win ninety eight games and lose and and can't even win the division to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And so here we go up to 1975. And once again, Sparky predicts that they're going to have a great run. They were 108 and 54 that year. They won the West by 20 games in 1975. And they swept the Pirates in the, in the playoffs to get to the World Series 3 and 0 to get to face uh, the Boston Red Sox. And here we go again. It's their third World Series since 1970. This is 1975. And they're getting a reputation, John. They're getting a little John Maddeny reputation, a little Tom mm-hmm. Landry reputation, a little Don Shula reputation, even though all of those guys at some point won a championship game. But he couldn't. they couldn't get over the hump. And Sparky was beginning to think it was him. Because look at we we've got multiple MVPs. We've got rookie of the years. We've we we lead the league in run scored every year. We have a top five pitching staff. You know what's what's the problem? Maybe it's me. And uh, so they face Boston, and we talked about this uh, last episode. Boston had had reinvented themselves, and in large part because of that young outfield. You know, Freddie Lynn was the rookie of the year and the MVP that year in center. Uh, in left was uh in left was Jim Rice, who was also a rookie. We talked about that. That was the progressive Finished second the other day. in rookie of the year voting. There you go. Jim and Brantley. he was 23. So, so Freddie Lynn's 23. Jim Rice is 23. And in right field is Dwight Evan is he's 25 mm. and he catches anything that is that is thrown out there. Uh, so much so that that Carl Yastrzemski, who is the Hall of Fame outfielder for the Cincinnati for the Boston Red Sox, they relegate him to first base in 1975. Uh, they had Louis Tion, who we talked about, who was a great pitcher. He in the in the year of the pitcher in 1968, Louis Tion had a 1.60 ERA, John, and then he had arm troubles as well a little bit later, and then came back uh, as well, just sort of pitched through it. They also had Bill Lee, a spaceman, who had a great year that year. They call him the spaceman, and um, Rick Wise, another great pitcher. Dick Drago was their closer. Dick Drago who could throw very very hard and was involved in a lot of the key moments in 1975. Daryl Johnson was their manager, and they ran through the A's. We talked about that. This was the end of the A's run. In 1975, they went 3-0, and and, and the, Oakland only had one lead. Right. The entire series, they had, one, they had a lead one time. They just ran through the A's. And, um, and so now here we go to game one of the 1975 World Series where the Cincinnati Red Machine is trying to finally show that they are the best team in baseball. Game one. And this is an anecdote that you found as well, John. This is why Live from New York is behind me right now. Game Saturday, one. October 11th, 1975. 1975, when Saturday Night Live debuted, is the same day as game one of maybe the best World Series of all time. And the sketch that's really, in, in a way, maybe not most famous because it wasn't the first sketch, but the one that has probably t- stood the test of time is Andy Kaufman's <laughs> Andy Kaufman's here I here I come to save the day bit, which was in that episode for crying out loud in 1975. And, you know, the only I know that is ESPN Classic or someone was showing game one of the series. And, uh, you know, it was a truncated version, but they they included the banter in between pitches and stuff. They just took out uh, some other stuff. So whoever was announcing and I I can't 100 percent remember, I think it might have been Kurt Gowdy. Um, well, Kurt Gowdy and, and Tony Kubek and Joe Garagiola were the main announcers, but I know Dick Stockton uh, took a turn in there. But it was, well, it was probably Kurt Gowdy. 
it, it was Gowdy, Kurt Gowdy. I'm just watching this just for fun and doing something around the house. And I hear Kurt Gowdy go, new television show coming up to Saturday night. And, uh, it, you know, I can't do a Kurt Gowdy, imp- but in his inimitable Kurt Gowdy voice, he's promoting the first episode of Saturday Night Live. So that's kind of a cool thing. It is a very cool thing. And and this is the other thing, too. Like Pete Rose, okay, he'd been in the league now 13 years. This was this was before interleague play. He had never seen Fenway Park. Wow. Isn't that amazing? All of them were like marveling at the Green Monster, marveling at how uh, short a porch that was and yet how high a wall that was. They couldn't get over the the dimensions of Fenway Park. They had never been there. This is before interleague play. Right. And, uh, you know, there is an argument, I suppose, when you consider those kinds of stories about uh, how special that was, how special that did indeed make the World Series. So it was Louis Tian in game one, throws a shutout, blows by the Reds. Uh, and, and this is the thing about we've mentioned him now a few times, but he was from Cuba as well. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew how old he was. At all. Everyone suspected he was a lot older than he said he was. I think he said he was th- in uh, in 1975. He was 35 listed as born in 1940. So Tony Perez, when asked about it, said said this. All I know is Tiant was a big national hero when I was a boy growing up in Cuba. And now he's one year older than me. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness fun anecdote for uh for tion and i'm and, and again i'm just trying to to get one in that you you might not know is that his father actually showed up for uh the first game uh, of the world series he might have been there through the whole series and he hadn't seen him in a number of years well that's interesting you bring up his dad i well, i had to edit this when i went through this thing but uh his contortions that Louis Tian would go through on the mound. It, so far. You know, some people said it looked like he was having a stroke or a seizure up there, but that was his reinvention when he came back after his arm trouble. He did that. That's how his dad pitched back in Cuba. And so he took a lot of those moves from his dad. He wasn't, he was pretty much straight ahead pitcher mm-hmm. prior to that. Gary Nolan was a fastball guy. And when he had his arm problems, he had to become a, a junk ball guy and uh, just paint the corners. So the, the, to your point earlier on, that's what these pitchers had to do back in the day when there yeah. wasn't modern medicine. They had to reinvent how they pitched. Louis Tiant was one of them, and it, and it came from what his dad taught him and how, what, right. how he saw his dad pitch back in the day. So he pitches a shutout. Then the Reds struggle again in game two. And literally, there's set, it's in the eighth inning, and it's been 17 innings now. The big red machine has scored one run so far. There's a clutch double by Johnny Bench. They're able to pull that one out. It's, it, they, they tie the ball game. It's two It's uh, two to two. Game three has the big controversy that happened, and this is the bottom of the 10th inning, and it's Ed Armbrister, John. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that name? I, I, I actually, because I watched some highlight on this, I had not, when he was mentioned, it was one of those names I knew from baseball back then, but I had to be reminded of it. But I so did he, not know. I knew about this controversy, but I did not realize it was Armbrister. So it's an it's another tight game because uh, game two was a one runner. This is obviously a one runner. It's the bottom of the tenth inning, and Armbrister's up there. He's pinch hitting for Ken Griffey, which is very odd move, but he was doing that, and he bunts it, and he you know him and Carlton Fisk get tangled up, and I think it was uh, Concepcion or Geronimo who was on first base ends up on third, and so does Armbrister because of everything. Uh, Armbrister ends up on second. And uh, then they walk Pete Rose, and then the other run comes in on a fly ball. Yeah, Fisk, Fisk and, threw the ball into center field, didn't he? And, to try and, and, they, get up? and yeah. they win the game. Of course, when they look back at it, everyone thinks, you know, the Daryl Johnson comes running out, the manager of the Red Sox. And Tony Kubak is yelling and screaming on the on the television that it's interference. interference. 
And and of course, if you look in the rule book for Major League Baseball, one one of it says, okay, if the batter interferes with the defensive player trying to make a play, that's interference. And then there's another definition, I don't know, 1,800 pages later, that says <laughs> if the player um, has a determination to get in their way and does it on purpose or has that in mind, that's interference. So now it's like, well, how do you interpret this thing? Right. You know, they, they needed to have a Supreme Court. You know, it's like the Constitution. How do you how do you interpret this? And the umpire at the time, who then eventually got death threats throughout the rest of that series, said, no, it was obvious Armbrister wasn't trying to interfere with Carlton Fisk. And so they allowed it and the run scored. And um, uh, New he York certainly Times- didn't hustle down to first, though. I mean, I watched that film. Armbrister yeah. didn't really hustle down to first. And that was the thing, because Fisk right handed took a step out to the right a little bit and armbrister was essentially in front of him yes and as, and, but i think maybe if you look at it and i encourage everyone to do and i hate to take over this just for a second mark because i've watched it a couple of times uh it uh it certainly does look like armbrister wasn't sure the ball was going to be a fair ball it's it, it seems like it's that yes and it's you know when when you're also sacrificing and it's something like the, the catcher is going to get it right away. You kind of jog to first as well, because really your job right. is done. Uh, so uh, I, I agree. I think, I think the right call was made in terms of it. Armbrister not trying to do it, but you could argue that the right call wasn't made because there is a black and white version of the interference rule in the rule book. And, that and he, Fisk, that he used. yeah. And Fisk had to, you could tell Fisk had to throw it from a position he wasn't comfortable from. No. So there was interference, but the question is, which rule, to your point, which rule supersedes the other? Intent versus interference. So so the Reds end up winning that game. Rex Smith, who was a big sports writer at the time for the uh, New York Times, uh, asked Sparky Anderson after the game, you know, how he saw that play. And Sparky Anderson said, to be honest with you, I don't see that well. <laughs> <laughs> So good old wow. Sparky. I love it. I love it. So game four is when we talked about Louis Tion throws his 163 pitch shutout. Not shutout, but complete game. I mean, this is after all the arm trouble. It's it was a different time, John Pelkey, but Louis Tion was a was a giant. I don't know why he's not in the Hall of Fame, to tell you the truth, but he's not. Yeah, um, you can't tell the story. I I really don't think you can tell the story of baseball in the nineteen seventies without Louis Tion. So now it's tied 2-2, and at this point in time, Game 5, Tony Perez has yet to get it. He's 0 for 14. And uh, Sparky Anderson, first thing he sees when he sees Tony Perez, Game 5, when they're getting ready to start playing, says, you know, uh, I'll tell you what, Tony, you're only going to need a few more at-bats to set set the World Series record. (laughs) Gil Hodges went 0 for 21 in the 1952 World Series. You can do it. Remember that fact, folks. Remember that fact. It'll it'll come in handy soon. And then Rose was giving him a hard time, said, so am I going to have to carry your ass again today, <laughs> big dog? And Joe Morgan says, hey, doggy, because that's what they call him, big dog. I've been telling you all this. You're nothing but an old Cuban. You're washed up. You can't even hit American League pitching. Everyone gave him a hard time, including the manager, and he goes out and hits two home runs that game <laughs> to win game five. And then reporters asked Pete Rose what happened, and, and uh, he was in a slump, and, and he broke out of the slump, and Pete Rose said, Tony Perez was not in a slump. He, he just didn't get any hits. <laughs> it's a big difference with Doggy. It's a big difference. He just <laughs> didn't get any hits. He wasn't in a slump. So I loved that distinction that Pete Rose had. And so now it's 3-2 Reds leading up to Game 6, the, uh, the very famous Game 6. There's a three-day rain delay 
in that. During those rain delays, a lot of things happened, John, including Alvin Dark getting fired. Alvin Dark, the manager of the 1975 Oakland A's, who won the 74 World Series. And do you know why he got fired from the A's, John? Why Alvin Dark got fired from the A's? Yes, who won a World Series in 74 for the A's, and this is the next year. Um, I should remember because I did the A's deep dive, but I but I kind of blew past that point. Uh, so, no, I do not remember why Alvin Dark. You, you're going to well, tell me, and I'm going to remember. Well, maybe, and I don't know. It's it's very, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, he was a member of a Pentecostal church, and he did some, he got up there and started preaching and started saying that, uh, that if Charlie Finley didn't change his ways, now that I he would go to hell. Yeah, <laughs> that he would yeah. burn in hell. I'm not sure if he used the lake of fire in that particular uh, sermon, right. but he just calls out Charlie Finley and said, if he doesn't change his way, and literally immediately he's fired as a result. Alvin, uh, sometimes uh, you can't say what you think, Alvin. I know that's for, for darn sure. And uh, Burnett, uh, guys, the umpire, Larry Barnett, who is the one that made the call of the interf- lack of interference. He had his life threatened multiple times during this three game rain delay or three day rain delay. Also, during this time, the Reds went to work at Tufts University to work out. Harvard had offered them the opportunity to work out there. But Sparky Anderson says, I understand they've grown pretty radical over there and I'm a conservative. So they went to Tufts instead. Wow. I know. Okay. So here we are. We're at the bottom of this. Uh, we're at the uh, the eighth inning, really, in, in games in game six. It's six to three. Uh, a lot has really happened up to this point, but it's amazing what was still to come between the eighth inning and the twelfth inning when Carlton Fisk hit his home run. Riders had already decided; they had already deemed that Rowley Eastwick would be the MVP for this, and of course, he's brought in. <laughs> he's brought in. To face uh, to face Bernie Carbo, who oh by the way was a rookie of the year for the Reds in nineteen seventy. Yep. yep, and uh, and Sparky Anderson was known as Captain Hook. He would take p- pitchers out in the third inning, <laughs> uh, in, and then he'd throw another starter in there and 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 pitch him for two. He was known as Captain Hook and thought about taking Raleigh Eastwick out and and bringing in someone else because Carbo was a lefty and uh, bringing in a bringing in a right hander. Oh, bringing in a lefty, rather. But he decided against it. Raleigh Eastwick was out there. Then Raleigh Eastwick gets ahead on the count. He has two strikes on Carbo. And then Sparky Anderson actually thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring him in now. <laughs> I'm going to bring in my guy right now, my lefty. Carbo cannot hit lefties. I'm going to do that right now. But for whatever reason, Captain Hook, air quotes, didn't do it. And, of course, we know what Bernie Carbo did. He unloaded a uh, three-run home run to tie the game. And as he passed Pete Rose, we hear a lot of stories about what Pete Rose said and what he does say the rest of the game. But Carbo said to Pete Rose, don't you wish you were that strong? They just keep ripping on Pete Rose for having no power. (laughs) So everyone thinks, okay, it's six to six in this game. And then it's and then Carlton Fisk hits a home run in the bottom of the 12. But there was all kinds of drama that happened uh, subsequent to Bernie Carbo's home run. The Red Sox loaded the bases with no one out in the bottom of the ninth inning. And I think it was Freddie Lynn. Yeah, it was Freddie Lynn who hits this kind of a line drive down the uh, the left field line. And Foster, you know, is, is going over to try and catch it. And he's thinking, maybe I should just let it go or drop it because I don't know if I can get the guy out from third base. Well, he at the, at the last second, he decides to catch it. And he turns around 
And it's Denny Doyle on third, who apparently thought Don Zimmer, who was the third base coach at the time, said, go, go. And Don Zimmer was saying, no, no. Right. That's thrown out the plate. It's a double play. They get out of that inning. Uh, in the 11th inning, these are some great stories from from Pete Rose. He turns to Carlton Fisk in the 11th inning. I know this. And, uh, and he just goes, you know, this is some kind of game, isn't it? We're going we're gonna to tell our grandkids about this game. Right. And evidently, Fisk, like, even though he's catching, he, he goes, yeah, I mean, he, he nods in agreement. Right. Then Rose walks, and then at first base, <clears throat> he, uh, he talks to Yastrzemski. And he says, you know, this is the greatest game I've ever played. And, and Yastrzemski agrees with him as well there. <laughs> then he is on first base when Joe Morgan is up. And um, actually, they uh, actually I think he got doubled. He, he didn't get doubled off, but he was uh, he was out. And uh, I think it was Griffey on first base. That's what it was. And here's Joe Morgan. And he hits that fly to left field uh, to right field. And Darryl, uh, you know, Dwight Evans goes back and back and. Literally, Ken Griffey is running around the bases, as yeah. is Joe Morgan, because this thing is going to hit the wall or it's a home run. But it looks like it's going to be a it's going to be a gapper. And Dwight Evans makes this just spectacular catch because there's no technique in it at all. Mm. He's running and running and running and just sort of throws his glove in the air, really, yeah. and catches it and then th- turns around and throws it back in. And it's way offline. But because Griffey was already on third base, it was a double yeah. play. Yep. And there was it. And then, of course, Fisk hits the home run in the bottom of the 12th. Now, in the game seven, that's the other thing, too. The game seven, the Reds are down three to nothing in the sixth inning. And they are not doing anything against Bill Lee. And, uh, and Rose gets a, gets a walk or gets a single. Then, is, then there's another out. Then Johnny Bench hits one to second base. And uh, Rose breaks up the double play because that's what he would do. He would just, mm. he would just barrel into people. The throw was offline. And so he's out, benches on first base. Rose comes back to the dugout and is cussing out his teammates. I mean, he's saying, you know, what, what's wrong with you? How come we're playing like a bunch of losers? You know, he says, you hear me? We're not going to lose tonight. You know what people are going to say about us? That we're nothing, that we're a bunch of He was just cussing everyone out. And Sparky was sad because Sparky is saying, here we go again. Here we go again. It's game seven. We're down three nothing. We can't get anything off this guy. Tony Perez comes up to, to Sparky Anderson and says, what's wrong? And he says, Sparky says, what do you mean, doggy? And we're losing three to nothing. And Tony Perez looks at him and says, don't worry, I hit home run. <laughs> and Bill Lee, who had struck Perez out on one of those hanging curveballs of his. Yep. Perez was waiting on it, hits a home run, and it's three to two. Perez hit 143 in that series, but hit three home runs with seven RBIs. It was key. Yeah. Key. It's and nobody else two. had – he had most RBIs for the Reds, right? I think somebody else maybe might have had five. So. Yeah, I, yeah. He, uh, most yeah, RBIs he, with yeah. a 143. Talk about, like, timely hitting, the, the definition right. of timely hitting. So in the seventh inning, Rose singles to tie the game. And in the ninth inning, with two outs, Morgan singles. Uh, and they win the game four to three. I mean, it had everything. That series had a hero, had a goat. You know, Denny Doyle was, I, I guess, a goat. Obviously, the moment of controversy, um, dramatic uh, – unexpected turns as well. I mean, just all this stuff, improbable things kept happening over and over and over again uh, with this. We got yeah. Lenny Rowe saying, what, what's Lenny saying here? He Controversial play in the 70 World Series. There you 70 go. 70 World Series, yeah, where the Orioles defeated the Reds. And, you know, the other thing about it, and watching the highlights of the, that game and some some other stuff on online, 
and remembering it from when I was a kid, because 75, I was really starting to get invested in baseball and watching all that, is uh, you have two teams that haven't won anything in a long time, to your point. Uh, it had been what nineteen nineteen for the for the Reds forty forty one actually forty one uh, yeah. but nineteen and forty one were the last two times and then with uh, Boston didn't want anything since nineteen eighteen yeah. at that point in time um, and uh, in addition to that the thing that struck me was the Reds were in Riverfront. Uh, they moved out of Crosley Field, uh, which was a cool, cool uh, old park. And Riverfront was just that cookie cutter. So watching the film from games in Cincinnati and games in Boston where you're in Fenway, maybe the most recognizable uh, stadium in all of baseball, it gave it that dichotomy as well. So I think it had everything going for it. And yeah, and you mentioned the fact that Carbo, who's a big hero, yeah. Had played for the Reds too, had, you know, had in won an a era where, of the year, yeah, right, and in an era where, to your point, some of those guys had never seen, uh, you know, another state National League yeah. or an American Remarkable. League stadium, and he'd played in both of the stadiums of those teams. That's just great stuff. Great. Pete stuff. Rose actually at the end of that series said it's something that most people, um, you know, can't understand that he just felt like. He said, we were too good to lose that series. The Red Sox were a good, damned baseball team, but we could not lose that World Series. This is a quote. If the Red Sox had scored 10 runs, we would have scored 11. (laughs) We could not lose. And, of course, he was awarded the MVP of that series, 1975, Pete Rose. And then you you, you blew over it, too. uh, You mentioned it, but what struck me is I'd forgotten about the three-day rain delay before Game 6. So now... I mean, you have your pitching set up because your game's going to be this next day. And now all of that's thrown out, and both teams have all of their pitchers on as much rest as they needed, essentially. And ironically, they barely had anyone left at the end of Game 6 after three days <laughs> of rain. It was amazing. It's it was remarkable. Amazing. Yeah. So then 76 comes. Now, the Reds finally are at the top of the heap. They've won, they've won the, the World Series. They uh, are obviously a great team of the 70s, kind of like how the Raiders would would get really close, would get really close and finally won one. But then in 76, they did what no other National League team has had done since 1921 or has done since. And they repeated they had 102 wins. They blew through Philly. They blew through the Yankees uh, seven nothing. Okay, seven games to nothing. None of the games were even close. I think there were two one-run games in that entire seven-game stretch. They just blew through it. Johnny Bench had an off year, but won the MVP in the World Series because he had two home runs and hit 533. And so what this team has done with all that struggle, they now put themselves in a place where they really were the best team. I, you could argue they were the best team in the 70s because they did win a they, – they were second place in 77, 78, won a division in 79, didn't beat the um, – did not beat the Pirates in the series that year. Right. But uh, you could argue they were the team of the 70s, even more than the A's that had won three, more than the Yankees, uh, more than the Pirates, who could be – you could argue they were a team – they had won two as well. Yep. They did something no other National League team did, and um, I think they were – really kind of the best team in baseball at that point, the big red machine two times in a row for a national league team. Uh, as I mentioned, 77, 78, they finish in second place. They don't have Perez in 77. He's traded away in 79 roses traded away. So they still have six of the, of the eight. 
And in 81, the remnants of the Big Red Machine uh, actually won more games than any other team in Major League Baseball, but didn't make the playoffs because of the split schedule. And they had only had three left at that point, I think, Griffey and uh, Geronimo and uh, Johnny Bench. But that's the story of the Big Red Machine. And that's our deep dive for July 3rd, John Pelkey. Just great. It's so much fun. And then you think about you know, trades away Rose and then he gets back to a World Series in, yes. in 1980. So, you know, I, I'm sure and, folks and, in Cincinnati were just apoplectic about that. And Morgan uh, goes to a World Series with the uh, Phillies in 1983 as well. And, uh, you know, Tony Perez has a 100 RBI year for the Boston Red Sox. Uh, later on, it's uh, very, very interesting to see what happened. But, yeah, that team was kind of broken up. Uh, in the late seventies and, uh, but it doesn't take anything away from them. And I, I still think it's amazing because when you think only two other teams, John, or three other teams have gotten National League teams have even gotten to the world series in back-to-back years, right? The Phillies in 08 and 09, the Dodgers just in, I think 17 and 18. And, uh, there was one other team that I can't think of off the top of my head right now that got to back-to-back world series. It's just not a thing the national league does. And yet right. the Cincinnati Reds did indeed do that. So, yeah, so and I think, it. again, the, the the ones that they lost, they came up against uh, pitching staffs that were really just above all other pitching staffs in baseball. So it, it it's just didn't matter if you were in the top five in the National League because that uh, Orioles staff and those, those A's staffs were, you know, they were at the top of the list in Major League Baseball as a whole. But they are the team. I, you know, I, I, I mentioned I went into the A's deep dive because that was the first team I rooted for in Major League Baseball outside of my home team. I'd go, uh, gone to both Orioles and Senators games. But the team that I remember for the longest period of time always showing up on NBC's Game of the Week in the National League, you had either the Dodgers or the Reds. That was yeah. it. You got a you got a steady diet of Cincinnati Reds if you were a kid like I was during the 1970s, watching that. If you, people can remember, and most people aren't that old. Well, people listening to this, most of them are that old. But just remember, you get that one game a week, and that was it. And we saw a lot of Johnny Bench, and yeah. a, a lot of Joe Morgan, and, and, a, and uh, a lot of Steve Garvey. And a lot yep. of runs day. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that's because uh, those two teams, they won every single division title in the 70s with the exception of one in 1971. And you know what team won in 1971, John? The 1971 West, um, NL Western Division title. I believe that might have been the San Francisco Giants. It was the San Francisco Giants. But outside <laughs> of that year, outside of yeah. that year, John, the Dodgers or the Reds won the division every single year. So they were huge rivals as well. Yeah. And um, so there it is. It's great there stuff. It is. It's great stuff. Were and you relatively entertained? I was very, very entertained. It was, it was, it, and it's just, it makes you want to. This is, this is the, the highest compliment I can. Makes me want to read a little bit more about them and follow because I know if it's like my deep dive was for every story you told, there were five yeah. that you didn't. Yes, um, that you had to have to go through. So, uh, yep, I really, really enjoyed it. Baseball in the seventies continues to uh, continues to be. For, for you and I, sometimes more important than baseball at any other point in time. Really. Uh, yeah, that, that's really good. Jeff, any thoughts of the deep? It was a lot of fun. A lot of, uh, I wasn't around for the 1975 World Series, so it was a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, now I want to go watch it. Yes, it's well worth it. There's, There's a no lot of documentary evidence of particularly that 75 series. I mean, there are there are highlight 
packages put together by every entity you could ever think of. And uh, I told Mark I'd watched one, and one of the guys they were interviewing was Bernie Carbo, and he was really entertaining. You know, this this guy who was, yes, he was a rookie of the year, Mark, but I think you would agree, after that, he became this sort of journeyman player. He was one of those guys yeah. Yeah, that, you know, he, he peaked his rookie season, essentially. Yeah. But he hung around the majors for a good period of time and had, he, had a, lo- a great career and ended up being a pre, uh, one of the preeminent players on, to your point, maybe the largest World Series stage ever. There at least is. in hindsight. So we're enjoying this deep dive. We're going to continue this in two weeks, I believe. John Pelkey, is that yep. the next day for this? Yep. Next two weeks from today, which is the 17th of July. Uh, and what will be the subject of that deep dive, John Pelkey? Well, it's interesting because uh, I said to remember something a bit ago when you were talking about, I believe it was Tony Perez's uh, a lack of success at the plate. Yeah. And he was given a lot of uh, crap by fellow players and uh, was it Sparky Anderson who said, uh, uh, wow, you know, a couple more times at the plate and you're going to match the futility of who was that, Mark? It was Gil Hodges, John Pelkey. Gil Hodges from the 1952 uh, Brooklyn Dodgers was with Brooklyn for a long time, but had that uh, season in 52. And that is a I've seen documentary stuff about that as well. And literally churches in Brooklyn praying for Gil Hodges to get out of his slump because he was just so loved at a time when players actually lived in the neighborhoods with the fans. Um, But it's interesting that you bring up Gil Hodges, Mark, because our next deep dive is going to concern just one one year of a team. I mean, we'll have a little bit of evidence of stuff from before and after, but we're really just talking about one year. The ultimate underdog one-year wonder team, though they would come back to the World Series a number of years later. And I'm talking about the 1969 New York Mets. Miracle were managed Mac. by the aforementioned Gil Hodges. And Gil Hodges, Mark, gets a lot of credit. Uh, as much credit as anybody who didn't uh, didn't start a game on the mound for that team, really, I think. Um, because, really, Seaver, Ryan, um, Kuzman, I guess. Right, uh, sure. Uh, they, obviously, that's one of the reasons that Mets team was so great. But many people will say that getting Gil Hodges as a manager was really the thing that pushed that team uh, to the uh, to the top. And sadly, Gil Hodges died uh, young, or he might have still been the manager of that Mets team that Yogi Berra was managing against the A's. So yeah. it's just a fun. There, no, we'll go back and we'll talk about the origins of the uh, of the Mets. We'll talk about the demise of uh, two baseball teams in New York that moved west and paved the way for that. Uh, for that Mets team, we'll talk about Robert Moses, the man who built roads and parks in New York and the part he played in the New York Mets. And uh, I, I, for one, just can't wait because I just think it's one of the fun stories in baseball. I can't wait either. Deep dive coming up July 17th, the New York Miracle Mets of 1969. All right, that does it. For Jeff, for John, this has been our deep dive. I'm Mark. You've been listening to After Further Review. Everyone have a lovely and happy and celebratory July 4th weekend. You have one more thing to say, John? Go watch Hamilton. Enjoy Hamilton and sh- give a shout out to Jody Chase tomorrow on July 4th. Happy 4th, everyone. Ciao.